I remember just waking up and the whole room is just shaking. The drop tiles in their ceiling were falling, the, the light fixtures were falling, and stuff is going everywhere. And I remember, you know, just kind of quickly coming to this realization that this building is going to collapse and I'm going to die here. You know, after, you know, West Point, Bullock, Ranger School, all this training, you know, it's come down to it and I'm, I don't have a chance to do anything. I'm sleeping in my sleeping bag with my Wobie in boxer shorts and a t-shirt and this building's going to collapse on me and I'm going to die. And that's when I first noticed really the, just the extent of the damage. I mean, you walked out and it was like Mad Max. Um, you know, there's all these Humvees on fire. There's this ASV that's split in half. There's 50 cal rounds cooking off everywhere. Um, and there is just smoke as far as you can see obscuring, um, you know, everything. Hi, and welcome to The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. For this episode, I talked to Major John Chambers. In 2007, he was a second lieutenant and deployed to Iraq. The small outpost where he and the rest of his battalion lived was hit almost daily by rockets, mortars, and RPG fire. But one day in November of that year, they were hit by a series of what are called improvised rocket-assisted munitions, IRAMs. Soldiers also often call them lob bombs because of the way that they're fired high up into the air to fall on their targets. In this case, actually the very first attack that used these lob bombs against US forces in Iraq, the target was Chambers' battalion. Now, we originally ran this episode last year. It was actually one of our very first, but we're running it again now for two reasons. Number one, it is one of the best examples that we've highlighted yet of really how many different ways combat can be experienced. Chambers was an engineer. He had a very specific job to do when his outpost was attacked. And the second reason we're re-airing the episode is because a while back, I was contacted by somebody who heard the episode and was also at that outpost for the IRAM attack but his job was different, and his combat experience during that exact same attack was also very different. We're about to release an episode featuring that conversation soon, and I really want listeners to hear this one again first, because in tandem, they really illustrate how unique, almost how individual the experience of combat really is. After all, this is why we launched The Spear. Before we get into the episode, a couple quick notes. First, if you're not already subscribed to The Spirit, you can do so wherever you get your podcasts, and I would highly recommend you do it so you don't miss the upcoming episode that features the story of this IRAM attack from a very different vantage point. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Major John Chambers. Uh, Major John Chambers, thanks for sitting down and talking to us for this episode of The Spear. Uh, we're going to talk about something that happened to you in 2007, right? Yep. Uh, an IRAM attack. Um, can you kind of talk us through just briefly what that is, what happened? Yeah, so um, an IRAM is an improvised rocket-assisted munition. Um, and it's essentially, um, it takes some sort of rocket booster and um, weld it to a canister, fill it with explosives and um, try and lob it over a wall. It's also called a lob bomb. Um, 
Essentially, we were stationed at Cop Callahan in northeast Baghdad, uh, just outside of Sadr City, really fighting the, the Jaysh al-Mahdi, um, the Shia militias. And uh, mid-November 2007, uh, I believe it was the 14th, there's some conflicting dates, um, but as far as I can reconcile, it was the, the 14th. Um, you know, the, uh, the militia that we were fighting um, pulled a truck up outside the, uh, the walls of our base and lobbed about I think it was eight or ten of these uh, IRAMs over our wall. And really what happened, uh, thankfully, is they fell short and landed in our motor pool um, and damaged uh, probably about 15, well, about 20 trucks. Uh, and I think it destroyed uh, 10 of them and um, left, you know, four or five foot deep craters and reinforced concrete. Um, and we were lucky enough that none of them hit the building that we were in. Uh, we were all, we all lived in a single building. There were about 450, 500 of us in there. Uh, pretty much everybody was in there at the time, um, other than those who were actually out in the motor pool getting ready to go on patrol that morning. Um, and those guys, they actually took the brunt of uh, the attack. And miraculously, uh, we only had 15 people wounded, and we didn't have anyone uh, killed in action, surprisingly. That's, uh, that's fortunate, because that, that hasn't been the case necessarily with all the IRAM attacks. So there, this is a pretty rare tactic. It wasn't something that you were seeing every day. And I think this was one of the first, if not the first, right? Yeah, so this was the, the first one, and it was actually part of a, um, a complex attack, not in a sense that they, they shot the IRAMs at us and then you know, attacked with small arms fire or, or tried to overrun our gates, but complex in the, in the fact that it, they hit three different uh, combat outposts at the same time. Um, across northern Baghdad. So it was Cop Callahan where I was at. Uh, I believe Rustamaya was the other one. And the third, I'm not sure what it was. I think it might have been Cop Cobra. Um, but they hit three at the same time. It was a coordinated attack um, and trying to produce a lot of casualties simultaneously. So I kind of want to step back a little bit and, and, and frame this. So you were with what unit? So I, I was with... Um, 2325 Airborne Infantry Regiment, part of uh, 2nd Brigade, 82nd Airborne Division, uh, which was the lead surge brigade. So we were the first brigade to go in um, during the surge. The, the brigade deployed uh, in January of 2007. Um, at that point, I, I was actually just getting ready to start Ranger School. Um, and once I finished you know, all my training, uh, I think I got to brigade in about May and ended up deploying in August. So I joined them about halfway through a 15-month deployment, um, and then this attack happened in November. And what, what was your job? What were you doing? So I was the task force engineer. So uh, what I would do is I would coordinate all uh, mobility, counter-mobility, survivability missions for the battalion. And so that was anything from coordinating and planning route clearance operations to support our, operate, or our missions to... Uh, really what I did the most of was putting in a lot of barriers. I think uh, I put in um, about 12 miles of barriers in, in about eight months, a couple of checkpoints, uh, a couple of JSSs. In fact, they called me Concrete Six because <laughs> that's pretty much all I did. Well, this is, I mean, I think that's important that, you know, this was, you were the first surge brigade mm -hmm. um, of what, five or six or seven or yeah. um, however many, but alongside, you know, the surge manpower was a, a change in, in some of the things that we were doing operationally. One of those was, 
um, try to exert more control over population movements, uh, and that means concrete. Yeah. And so you guys had in your area of responsibility Sauter City, which we essentially walled off, mm-hmm. um, probably started during your deployment. Yeah, I actually, so the wall that went across Route Gold on the south side of Sauter City, I actually started that in our, um, started that, built that essentially from Cop Callahan all the way, um, I guess to be traveling southeast towards Sauter City, and then stopped at the traffic circle of Gold and Grizzlies right when we redeployed, and then the the follow-on unit finished the rest of that wall. So essentially what we were trying to do is um, reduce the sectarian violence and reduce uh, the ability of the different, um, the Shias and the Sunnis essentially to cross into different neighborhoods and kill each other. And we were able to do that with, with these concrete barriers. And the concrete barriers presumably were also used as they were on a lot of uh, U.S. bases for force protection. I mean, you were essentially isolating areas so that when you did have incoming indirect rounds like this, that you could sort of contain the damage. Um, did you have T-walls set up for that purpose at Callahan? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the outer wall of the of the cop was really HESCO barriers, so t- stacked about too, too high. Um, and then inside, breaking up where all the vehicles were stored from the HLZ, from the ammo supply point, all these different areas we had. Um, various um, T-walls and Texas barriers, different types of barriers to um, prevent that. And then we actually had an inner wall of, I believe we had an inner perimeter of T-walls actually around the physical building. Um, So when we walked out to use the restroom or go to the shower, we didn't get shot by a sniper or, you know, take a mortar around because we, um, we we got mortar pretty much every day when we were there. Maybe not every day, but every other day um, we'd take mortars or RPGs um, into the building where we were at. So, at this time, um, you know, Baghdad before that had been, you know, in, in some ways cosmopolitan, but fairly diverse, in a lot of ways kind of planned because Saddam would essentially force relocate certain communities. Well, after uh, Saddam Hussein's regime fell in 2003, you had sort of sectarian violence that created these kind of homogenous neighborhoods. And I think at the time, one of the big priorities of effort was countering AQI, countering Sunni extremists. Mm-hmm. But in East Baghdad, and particularly this part that you're at, that's not the problem, says it. Yeah, no, when, you know, as a young second lieutenant deployed, thought we are going to go to Iraq and, and fight Al-Qaeda. And then uh, I get there and I learn about these guys named Jaysh al-Mahdi, and I had no idea. Actually, in fact, it took me a day or two to figure out what JAM was. Everybody was talking about we're fighting JAM, and I was like, who, who the heck is JAM? What, what are we doing here? Um, but really, at that time, you know, it was the height of the sectarian, you know, violence, the civil war. And so just south of our area operations was Adamiya, which was the Sunni stronghold, really, um, you know, one of the, the heart of AQI, northern Baghdad. And then we were controlling, at least my battalion was controlling the Shia side. So our brigade owned both. Um, we, we were in charge of the Shia and they were in charge of the Sunni um, and trying to, um, you know, really reduce that violence in, in Baghdad and, and keep them away from each other. So you get there in uh, August mm-hmm. 2007, uh, join your battalion. Um, what's, what's, what's it like at Cop Callahan from a, on a day-to-day basis? What are, what are the primary threats? Is it indirect fire? Is it IEDs? Yeah, so um, a whole smattering of things. Really, you know, if you want to talk about Cop Callahan itself, the threat was indirect fire uh, in RPGs and, and snipers. Um, and then once you got out into... Uh, our area of operations, you had the main threat was explosively formed penetrators, EFPs, 
uh, which you know were, were a hallmark of the Shia militias as opposed to the deep buried IEDs that you would find in Sunni neighborhoods. We, we, we had EFPs and snipers. Um, so it was rare that we actually um, you know, had, had force or engagements that lasted any length of time. It was uh, you know, an EFP here, a sniper here, um, and, and really kind of um, dis- trying to disrupt our operations as opposed to, to fight us. So on the cop, um, you're being hit every now and then with rockets and mortars. How often is that happening? Yeah, so I'd say there was there were a couple big attacks before I got there. Uh, there was one where they direct laid, um, I want to say it was 100, 120, 122 millimeter rockets, fired about 20 of them at the, at the cop. Um, we took some casualties. Um, so I guess the spectacular attacks, there was, there was that one, there was one in uh, the IRAM attack in November, and then after we left, there was another IRAM attack. Um, so those happened, let's say, every six months or so. Um, but we, we, we took indirect mortar fire uh, probably once a day, once every other day. Um, and then we would have RPGs maybe every two weeks or so. Um, they would try and shoot the cop and hit something. Um, and so, you know, what that meant for us living there is we, we couldn't go outside without our body armor. You know, there was no, there was no doing PT. We had a small gym and even the gym was, was somewhat exposed. So you're taking a little risk going up there to get a workout in. Um, and really inside the, the cop, all, everything was blocked up. So we had no windows, no light inside. It was just this enormous, it was actually an old shopping mall that we lived in. This felt like an enormous building. It's not a shopping mall in the sense that what most Americans would think of, right? But, but. No. It was called the uh, the Shab Market before we moved in. Um, and they took it over in, I believe it was February of 07. Um, and it was about four or five stories tall, relatively small footprint. Um, and we had about 450, 500 people living in there, um, all in tight quarters. Yeah, it sounds like it. So... The rockets and mortars are are fairly frequent occurrence, mm-hmm. um, at least in ones and twos. Presumably, you didn't have a CRAM at Copcon that was going to give you advance warning. Of, and even if on some of the bases that did have it, more often than not, when you heard it, there wasn't anything coming in. And when something did come in, you didn't hear it. Um, so you just are waiting, and you hear an explosion. Is that is that like yeah yeah pretty much? And, and it was funny because we had a, this giant antenna on top of the building. First off, we were one of the biggest buildings in the neighborhood. And then we had this giant antenna on top, and so we used to joke that that's always what the insurgents used to aim their mortars. You know, it was easy easy to see us. Um, and, and no, there there really wasn't any warning. I mean, you'd be usually happened during the day, rarely at night. Um, you'd be in there, and all of a sudden you'd start hearing mortars going off. And I actually remember one time. Uh, a mortar landed on the roof and didn't detonate. And after the attack was over, the rooftop NCO found this mortar and was like, hey, we need to get EOD up here to take care of this. And, you know, we're watching it on our security cameras and EOD is going up to, to do the control detonation. And I remember, you know, doing in my mind where this, this mortar is loaded that or landed that they're going to blow up on our roof. And I realized it's literally almost like literally above my head. And so I was like, huh, I hope this, uh, I hope this roof holds, you know? Um, so that, but that was, you know, not a big deal. That's something we dealt with every day in, in the building, um, held up pretty well, at least against, you know, small 60s, um, 81 millimeter mortars, some stuff like that. So how was the IRAM attack in November different? Um, so the IRAM attack, IRAM attack was different because of just the scale and the magnitude. Um, you know, you're not talking small 60 millimeter mortar rounds. You're talking about giant canisters filled with explosives that are putting, you know, four to five foot deep holes. 
um, in reinforced concrete. Uh, and, you know, they did significant damage to our vehicles. And when the attack happened, and, and how it really differed from the mortars is the scale, the complexity, and, and really the, the amount of damage that happened. So instead of these, you know, little 60, 81 millimeter mortars, it was, you know, these canisters filled with um, a significant amount of explosives that's leaving, you know, five foot deep craters and reinforced concrete out in our motor pools. Well, what was the... What was the typical damage if you, if you got hit by a 60 or an 81? Um, not a whole lot. I mean, maybe someone would get shrapnel or it may just, you know, all, all our trucks were up armored. So it may just, you know, nick them and, and, and cause some cosmetic damage. Um, you know, if they got lucky, they take out a, a porta potty or something like that. Um, whereas these destroyed 1151 Humvees, it took a, an armored security vehicle and literally ripped it in half. Um, and there were people in, if I remember correctly, there were people in the ASV when it hit and they survived miraculously. Um, and so it was just on a, on a whole different scale. Um, you know, and additionally just the, the noise or the feeling of it. So when it hit, it, that attack actually happened at, you know, 7am. So I remember I'd been out all night putting in barriers, uh, slinging some concrete, and I probably got in. I usually get in around four or five in the morning, um, go to sleep for a couple hours, and get up and do all the stuff I needed to do to prep for the night and to do all my duties as the engineer. And so I probably got to sleep about four or five in the morning. I, I was asleep in my cot. We um, had an interior room, and so it was myself and um, a couple other lieutenants and captains lived in there, but there were only two of us at the time, myself and Lee Kennedy. And um, I remember just waking up and the whole room is just shaking. Like you hear people talk about an earthquake and it's like a snow globe and they take it and shake it around. That's what I felt like. I mean, the, the drop tiles in their ceiling were falling. The, the light fixtures were falling and stuff is going everywhere. And I remember, you know, just kind of quickly coming to this realization that, you know, this building is going to collapse and I'm going to die here. You know, after, you know, West Point, Bolick, Ranger School, all this training, you know, it's come down to it. And I'm, I don't have a chance to do anything. I'm sleeping in my sleeping bag with my whoopee in boxer shorts and a t-shirt. And this building's going to collapse on me and I'm going to die. Um, and so thankfully, the, you know, the building didn't collapse any further than that. And we were kind of, you know, pulling some of the debris off us and or off of us and, I look over at Lee and we're like, we're good, we're good. All right, good. So what do we do? You know, and like, oh, we, we better, we got to run to the talk. We got to let everybody know we're okay. So, you know, being two lieutenants, we just jump out of our, jump out of our cots and our sleeping bags and get our stuff. We're like, run down the talk and, you know, there's it's like chaos inside the cops. Like some kicked over a beehive, you know, there's people running everywhere. I remember we get to the talk and we just kind of, we ran, ran through the door and I think, I don't know what it was, but when we came through the door, everyone stopped and looked at us and it was like, you know, going to a party and wearing the wrong costume and you come in the front door and everyone's like, what are these two idiots doing? Cause we weren't wearing any body armor. We didn't have our helmets. We didn't have our weapons. Everyone in there's all kitted up and we like immediately just look at each other. We're like, we were so dumb. We probably should have grabbed that stuff. <laughs> so... Um, we, we checked in with S3, we're like, hey, we're here, we're good. We're going to go back and, and grab our, our kit. And, it, and the attack actually came in two waves. And I don't remember when the second wave came, but I know when we moved to the talk was sometime between the first four or five hit 
and when the second four or five hit. Um, and so, you know, some, something else happened. We, or they came in, with, either when we're going back to our room or whatever, we get our stuff, we go back to the, the talk, um, and we get there and it's, it seems like things have really at least died down. You know, there's not, they're not going to bring dismounts at us. It's not a, a, an attack, complex attack in the sense that they're going to, you know, give us indirect fire and then come in with, with um, soldiers. So it seemed generally that it was over. And um, I remember the battalion commander, um, then Lieutenant Colonel Richard Kim, um, you know, looked at me and he said, <laughs> I was second lieutenant, he said, you know, is this building going to fall down? And I was just like, sir, um, you know, as the engineer, I said, sir, you know, I, I'll go and I'll check it to the best of my ability, but we really need to get some professional engineers out here to look at it because this is beyond my level of expertise. Um, now, I was a civil engineering undergrad, so thankfully I knew some stuff about structural integrity, you know, what's going to be a load-bearing wall, what's not going to be, um, what do we need to look for on some of the beams, um, you know, enough to be dangerous, I guess. And um, so the HAC first sergeant and I went down to go and kind of assess the cop and see, hey, look, do we need to evacuate this building with an entire battalion in it right now before it collapses and, and, and more people start dying? Because we didn't have any idea, casualties at that point, um, the situation was still developing. And so um, the HAC first sergeant and I went, you know, came down the stairs, and that's when I first noticed really the just the extent of the damage. I mean, you walked out and it was like Mad Max. Um, you know, there's all these Humvees on fire. There's this ASV that's split in half. There's 50 cal rounds cooking off everywhere. Um, and there's just smoke as far as you can see obscuring, um, you know, everything. And so it was actually um, kind of interesting. Some of my buddies were at a different cop down the way, cop War Eagle, and talking to him later, they're like, yeah, we thought you guys were all dead just by the the amount of smoke and flames and, and what it, you know, it shook their cop, which was, you know, a mile and a half or so away. Um, and so they were all, at that point, I learned later that they were, you know, mounting their QRF to come and figure out what had happened at Callahan and come um, provide us any help that we needed. Um, but, yeah, so the first R and I, you know, kind of toured, we went outside the building, kind of looked at all the different walls. We saw a couple non-load-bearing walls that were collapsed and they had cracks down them. But as far as I could tell, everything that was load-bearing looked okay. Um, and so, you know, that after that, we really um, kind of moved into the, the recovery phase. But I, I think what was, what was amazing about all that is, you know, to get hit by that force of explosive and then to realize that hey, there was an MP platoon that was literally right in the, the path of the explosives. And then there was our QRF, I think it was the QRF, or maybe one of the line, infantry line platoons getting ready to go out that day, who were outside when this happened. Um, and literally talking to some of those guys later, these IRAMs were hitting the hoods of their Humvee. And so they just see this thing hit, their foot, hit the hood of their Humvee, and then it skips off them, and they had um, you know, a, a time delay fuse. So they see it hit, and they're like, what the heck is going on? And then just this enormous explosion next to their vehicles. Um, and because there were two waves, some of them, between the first and second wave, some of them even got out trying to run back into the cop. And then the second wave hit, and they all had to die back into their trucks. Um, How much time was it between those two waves, you know? I, I don't. I, I think it was, you know, 
a minute, 30, 30 seconds. I, I really, I don't have any recollection. Um, so you got from, 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 from your room to the talk in that time. So yeah, I, I'm sure I was running as fast as I hey, could. Sir, <laughs> you know, I'm here reporting for duty. I'm here ready for duty with none of my stuff. I'll go back and fix myself. Yeah. So um, what's interesting to me is that something like this happens in, and I think training kicks in, right? Everybody yeah. kind of knows, and unit SOPs kick in. Everybody knows, hey, here's what I need to do. This is my little piece of, 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 of you know, the response to this. Um, you know, I'm pulling security. Here's my sectors of fire. Mm-hmm. Your job is, hey, is, is this building going to collapse? Yeah. And first of all, that's a hard thing to tell as a second lieutenant to tell your battalion commander who, you know, in a battalion, like, he's gone. Yeah. He tells you, this. it's a hard thing to say, this is beyond my you know, level of training or what have you. Um, but what kind of, pre- did you feel pressure then to, I mean, right now they're they're going to either clear the building, evacuate the building or not based on what you tell them. Did you feel any sort of stress about that? Yeah, I mean, the gravity of the situation hit me. You know, if if I was wrong and that building collapsed and the battalion commander stuck with my decision and it killed all those soldiers, I mean, I, I would have never been able to forgive myself. Um you know, so there, there definitely was, was some pressure, um, or absolutely was. But you know, I went out and did, um, you know, the best I could do what I've been trained and tried to pull back on, you know, anything I'd ever learned about engineering. You know, either here at West Point or in the career course, and just kind of eva- evaluating it. And I was able to come back and tell, you know, White Six, you know, hey, sir, I don't see any major structural damage. There's no you know, columns that have significant damage. We don't have any, you know, beams that are falling off. Um, it, it looks like we're okay. Um, now, I don't know how that assessment would have changed or how I would have been able to make that assessment if the building had actually been hit. So we were lucky in the fact that all of those IRAMs fell short of the building. Um, and that's why we, we had really minimal casualties given the, the magnitude of the event. Um, so... Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was nerve wracking, and then you're running around, everything's on fire, and you're trying to figure <laughs> figure out, um, you know, if this this thing is going to fall down. Why do you think these guys decided to switch tactics? And they had been hitting you with rockets, mortars, RPGs, those things. Why do you think one day they said, "Hey, let's get them with an IRAM"? Yeah, so I think I think they realized or understood that the the mortars. And RPGs were really unaffected, ineffective. Excuse me, against that that building. Um, and so they they really all they did were really just an, uh, you know an annoyance to us. Um, and I think November two thousand eight, it was it was clear that um, the surge was starting to work. We were walling off all their neighborhoods. We were able to you know bring violence down. Um, and I can't remember when exactly it was that General Petraeus was testifying before Congress um, halfway through the surge, but I think it was around that time. Yeah, yeah I think in September. Was it September? Yeah, was, I think it was, was September was what I, what, I, what I was thinking. But it was clear that the surge was starting to work or starting to, to make progress. And so my personal opinion is if they would have hit our building and killed, you know, 50, 100 having 400, 450 paratroopers, that would have been a significant impact on the domestic political situation back home. So it would have had strategic level effects, uh, you know, either hitting Cop Callahan, which is probably the best target given we're a small footprint, 
um, a pretty large building that that you would think would be easy to hit, and you know four or five hundred people inside at one time, um, as opposed to the other cops. The rest of my I think was pretty spread out, um, and some of the you know the the third one that they hit, um, and so I think I think they were really trying to achieve that strategic effect to to see if that would if they succeed in their attack, would that change the strategy of the United States? And even short of that, um, you know, they still were able to, even though they didn't bring down the building, they mm-hmm. didn't kill a single U.S. soldier, um, they still were able to create some, for at the time, some pretty high production value and, and pretty terrifying propaganda images of showing these things exploding. And I mean, explosions themselves are, are massive and they, you know, put it to music and, and it does have a certain... Um, you know, resonance. It, it it sends a message. Look at look what we can do. We can reach out and touch them with this. You know, massive amounts of firepower and violence. Um, did it have that effect? Did it change the mentality of uh, you know? Okay, we're we're a little bit more vulnerable here now in the cop where previously we had thought this is our safe place. Um, I don't know. I I honestly think it just pissed a lot of the paratroopers off. You know. Um... You know, take a shot like that at us, then then we're we're gonna come back and take it to you. Um, but what was interesting is, if I remember correctly, the the local nationals were supportive of further force protection measures that we took after that. So we had a major highway running past Cop Callahan, and we essentially were able to shut that down with their support. We were able to to um, push barriers out in a in a radius around the the cop to prevent trucks from being able to get close where they could do a similar attack later on. Um, and so I think in a sense it, it galvanized the local population to, you know, really support us and help push against these militias who are going to do something like that in their neighborhood. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting dynamic of it. Why do you think that is? Because presumably a lot of these people don't really care if an American or 400 Americans get killed in the yeah. next block over. Um, is it because these are, by their very nature, improvised and imprecise weapons that if they fall short, they'll land in somebody's house. If they go long, they'll land in somebody's house. And this was sort of, they, they started maybe associating their own security with, with yours? Yeah, I think this was kind of the last straw for a lot of them because, you know, they would, I remember when I first got there, a mortar missed Cop Callahan and landed in a neighborhood, landed in somebody's car, and I went out with... Um, the, the tack to go and, um, you know, apologize and and talk to them. They realized, so I think they realized that Cop Callahan wasn't going away and these militias came into their neighborhood and, and you know, executed a, a significant attack. And there was the possibility, you know, they really put the, the local po- population in danger. And in fact, um, I believe it was in April 2008 after we left, they tried another attack like that in Cop Callahan and the, the IRAMs didn't get out of the, the tubes of the truck and it actually blew up in the neighborhood. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think they, they realized that, um, you know, these militias didn't have their best interest in mind. You said, you mentioned earlier when you were kind of talking through the timeline, these initial minutes, you talked about, you know, the first time you, you head out to the talk, everybody's running every which way doing stuff. And that when you got back there, then the second time, um, Things have calmed down a little bit. Yeah. Um, on a broader level, was there a period of kind of bef- that it took to return to normal? 
Um, yeah, I think there was. I mean, there was a lot. I mean, just the fact the cleanup that it took. I mean, the assets that it took to get all those destroyed 1151s and we just a couple civilian cranes that we had to embarrass were destroyed um a wrecker was destroyed if i remember correctly so that it just took a lot of time to really clean up our motor pool and get stuff out and you know really focus on our internal security as opposed to all the external stuff we were doing prior to that um and i don't remember that time frame maybe a week um but it, it probably took us about a week to get back to normal you know, battle rhythm type operations. So it didn't have a long-term shift in, in emphasis or, or increased emphasis on your internal security at the COP? Um, yes and no. I mean, we, we implemented additional force protection measures. You know, we put a, a platoon out on that main MSR to shut it down and check all the vehicles and work with the, the national police to make sure that no trucks went by us. Um, you know, we went out and we would do more... Um, I guess dismounted patrols in the neighborhoods closer to the cop as opposed to pushing further out into our operational environment. Um, but other than that, I, it, it didn't really have a significant impact, no. Was there anything that, you know, this is your first deployment, your second lieutenant, is there anything that you took from, uh, from this incident, from the IRAM attack that kind of, has it shaped the way that you think as an Army officer thus far in your career? Um, I think up until that point, I didn't really have an appreciation for the enemy per se, um, but the fact that they were able to um, resource, plan and execute an attack like that um, really kind of gave me a, a you know, a higher, higher understanding or a better understanding of you know these forces that we fight and how they how they think and operate and that you can never underestimate them um and that even though there may be a lull in what's going on in the battle space because i think even prior to that it had been a, you know we used to get mortared you know every day every other day and i think prior to that it had been like a two-week lull or maybe something since we'd been mortared and then just out of the blue came this attack and so um you know, definitely an understanding that even though there's a lull in combat, you know, you can go to sleep and three hours later, you know, your whole world's caving in. So it, it comes quickly. Um, and, and there really is, you know, these, these periods of, of boredom and then punctuated by intense violence and action. Um, and you just got to be ready for that and prepared for it at all times. And you can't let yourself or your soldiers become complacent. Was this the, was this the sort of defining experience of the deployment for the battalion? Um, so I can't speak for the whole battalion because they were there for 15 months. I was there for, you know, seven or eight. Um, but definitely in the latter half of the deployment it was. And if you talk to, um, I think if you talk to everybody from the battalion still, everybody remembers the IRAM attack. And everybody remembers the IRAM attack if they weren't there. You know, oh, I remember when you guys got blown up and I was back at Taji on refit, you know, or whatever it may be. Um, so it's definitely a, a significant monumental event. Um, but I don't know if it's the same significant uh, monumental event for everyone, um, just given my kind of smaller snapshot of, of the deployment. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks very much again for sitting down and talking to us. This is uh, fascinating. It's the first one of these and, and probably one of the few that we could do just because this is such a, a rare type of attack. Um, one of the few that we could do on IRAM attacks. So I appreciate you sitting down with us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And check out the great new articles, podcasts, and more that we publish every day on the MWI website. Thanks again for listening.